0: So we're talking about the Ten Commandments, as you picked up already. That's the series that Pastor Rick has got you guys set out on. And I want you to do a thought experiment really quickly, because your brains probably don't work like mine. My brain always seems to find unusual little uh, crevices and caves to hide in. Um, But I want you to sort of catalog your experience of your life, your Christian life, and sort of think through when you think of the Ten Commandments what kinds of life experiences, like what parts of your life interact with that? I don't really know how to ask the question better than that, but for me, here's where it could be right or wrong. When I think of the Ten Commandments, I realize that this week, I primarily think of things that happened to me when I was a child, right? Um, I think of... We didn't have Adventure Week where I grew up, we had Vacation Bible School, and at Vacation Bible School and my first Baptist church in the small town of Oklahoma that I grew up in, I always sort of dreaded the time where they would say, hey, who can stand up and recite the Ten Commandments? And they'd give them like, you know, a popsicle or they'd give them some little pencil or something like that. And I was always, I just felt like it was guilt and shame because I could never remember all Ten Commandments, right? I realized later I've got dyslexia and I've got things I can complain that and blame that on, but it just felt like it was sort of like a moment where, I don't know the ten Commandments. How can I even call myself a Christian? I can't even remember 10 things. There's something wrong with that. And then I remember, uh, those of you who are 40 and older will certainly remember the Charlton Heston movie, The Ten Commandments, right? I have vivid memories as a child watching Charlton Heston talk about the Ten Commandments. And there's something going on there that makes me realize, I think, and I think we do this to other parts of the Bible, I think that somehow I've regulated the Ten Commandments to a childhood story, as if it doesn't have that much to do with my life now. And we do this to to other parts of the Bible, like uh, Noah's Ark tends to be, we think of, those of us who grew up in the church, sure not everyone did, uh, you think of the Ark as a child story. But if there's any story in the Bible that's not for children, it's Noah's Ark, right? I mean, it's for children as well, but it's not primarily a child story. The animals lined up two by two and got in the ark and then God completely ravished the entire face of the earth and wiped everybody off the planet because of their exceeding wickedness. It's, it's a heavy story at least, right? And the the Ten Commandments are the same in the sense of that there's heavy, there's deep things. And sometimes I think that those of us who've grown up in the church, at least this is my experience, I can sort of regulate certain stories, Zacchaeus, other things to sort of, well, that was the story. That was for children. And now you have to move on to doctrine and theology and other really important things. And we can somehow make this sort of divide. And primarily, it's nothing to do with the Bible. It's to do with our own experience. And so that's one of my hopes is that we'll sort of look at the Ten Commandments. Today we're looking at the first one, but we'll sort of look at it with fresh eyes and look at it to see what it has for us today, look for uh, what we can find in it new. So my goal by the end of the 30 minutes, 35 minutes, is that we'll think a little bit more carefully about what the First Commandment teaches us about God, what the First Commandment teaches us about us, and what the First Commandment teaches us about Jesus and how that connects everything so, if you don't mind, I'd like to read Exodus 19 for us, just so we can get a sense of, of where this commandments, this, this, this setting is coming from. Uh, the, the 10 have already been read, but I want to read sort of what sets everything up. So I'm going to read Exodus 19, starting in verse 10. Actually, I'm going to start a little bit. The paragraph breaks right at, at, at verse 9. So Exodus 19, this is leading up to God giving the law on Sinai. And we're going to refer back to this. We'll read this, and we'll ask for the Spirit's help, and then we'll get rolling. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they came up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day and do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and look, and many of them perish." And let the priests who came near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. The Lord said to him, go down, come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. And Moses went down to the people, and he told them, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, this is on the one hand a very uh, a passage that many of us are familiar with and have been familiar with for most of our lives, I'm guessing. Um, And so we need your help. We need the Spirit uh, to open our eyes. Um, I need your help, God. I I have no confidence in my ability to help any of us, including myself, be able to see this, to appreciate this, to love this um, without your help. And so uh, we ask for that now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so the first thing we're doing, we're seeing what can we learn about God from this first commandment. The commandment is simple. You shall have no other gods before me. The context, the reason I wanted to read the whole context is because I think it's very instructive. And there's a couple of things the whole series that that Rick's doing is to sort of help us see continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because it's tempting to see disunity. And there's a little bit of disunity, but we are tempted as Christians, New Testament, New Covenant Christians, to primarily emphasize how different the New Covenant is from the Old Covenant, rather than to see how much similarity there is. And one of the sorts of things that can, alarms that can go off in our mind a little bit, and I've heard this sort of expressed, and maybe you have some of these beliefs, is well, the God of the Old Testament is just sort of an angry, scary, mean God, right? God of the Old Testament is sort of angry, scary, mean God. He's always finding excuses to kill people. The ark's about to stumble and someone touches it and God just kills them. God swallows up people in the ground. Like the, the, just sort of this idea that mad God in the Old Testament and something appeases him and he makes him kind of less angry in the New Testament, something like that. And we see reason that you might believe that from this very passage, right? You get a lot of that sort of intimidating, heavy, don't come up to the mountain kind of stuff, right? And it's, it's, impur- it's important and it's purposeful that we see that because that's the illustration of the holiness of God. God is so different from us, God is so other than us, God is so perfect, God is so pure that He cannot and He will not tolerate sinful humans. One of my favorite parts about the passage is God's telling Moses, hey, don't let anybody come up. Um, God's going to come down to the mountain, right? If if we put up flyers all over uh, Orange County saying, hey, God's going to come down to Big Bear next week. We're in a religious culture, right? People be like, that's cool, I want to go. I want to go see God. And then the next thing God says is, hey, you know what? Put police tape around Big Bear, because we can't let people get up to see me, right? People are like, that's not fair. I want to go see God. God's putting on a lecture, God's putting on a concert. I'm there. I want to have this religious experience. But God's saying, no, no, you can't come. And then one of my favorite parts is that even the priests can't come. The Levites had to be like, what's up with that? Like, well, we're just treated like everyone else? We're more pure. We're the priests. We're the people who you, it's almost like you should at least get us to go. And God's like, no, no. Police tape. No one can come up except for those explicitly that I tell. It's not because they're better. It's just because that's what he's commanding. Moses and Aaron only. Everyone else, stay away. After he gives the Ten Commandments, if you look at the end, at 18, the after, right after in chapter 20, you see that the police tape wasn't necessary after all. It says, when all the people saw, so this, is, this is given sort of the people's experience as they're looking up while these ten commands are being given. When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. There wasn't going to need, as soon as it started, people are like, whoa, I've got to get out of here. And instead of pressing in to try to see God, people are trying to get away because it's just too much for them. They say to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. That's powerful stuff. God came down and His holiness was so great that the people who wanted to get up to the point that there was police barricade around, then they said, man, don't let that happen again, Moses. We can't stand to hear God again because it's reminding us of our sin and His holiness is so great. We're afraid we're going to die to hear God's voice again. So you might be saying, Well, wait, wait, you're just, you just talked about the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, but this, we don't see this in the New Testament, but there are times that the gl- glory of Christ glimpses through that the response of even the disciples is somewhat similar. Remember whenever Jesus calms the storm and the response by the disciples is fear. Who is this? There are little moments where that same holiness and power of the eternal God sort of shines through Jesus to the point that the people who hung out with him all the time, I always think of the disciples as sort of like Jesus' fraternity brothers, right? Because they're just its sort of this male-centered sort of dominated thing, and all of a sudden your fraternity brother frightens you because you realize he's God. That's pretty radical. So we see that continuity between the connection of Jesus, but really... More important, I think, for us as New Testament believers in this passage is to see the grace. Because there's grace here and there's grace throughout the entire Old Testament, but sometimes we miss it because we get so caught up on, well, mad God, judgment, works righteousness, New Testament comes, we get grace, and we get salvation through faith. But you see elements of that right here as well. Look at the way God introduces himself, 20 verse 1. God spoke these words saying... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God's already shown mercy to these people, right? And it's the whole point of the story. It's the Exodus, they're in. Egypt, they're in bondage, they're in slavery, and God, by his mercy and by his favor, selects this group of people who are already been selected, they're his children, and he brings them out. So you see this mercy, you see this selection, you see this care and protection of his people. And this is very instructive to us about what the law is, because we can, as New Testament Christians, believe the law to be bondage, right? We can believe the law to be slavery. But God doesn't bring the children of Israel out of slavery just to put them right back into slavery in the law. No, the law is a good thing. We can get overly simplistic, can't we? Uh, And I think our culture is full of this to where things are either bad or good. There's no room for sort of, well, that's good, but it could be better. It's like if things are either bad or good, then we think Old Testament, bad. New Testament, good. Law, bad. Faith, good. But what we see is, no, this Old Testament law is a good thing. It just is better in the new covenant because Jesus fulfills it. That the the things that were intended to be done get completed in Jesus. And you see that. You see that God says, hey, I brought you out of the house of slavery. Now I'm going to give you my law, not to put you back into slavery, but because of mercy, because of grace. We see this goodness of the law. We see the goodness of God to his people. And then in the first command itself, we learn some things about God. It's, if you just sort of, we're, we're all very familiar with the Ten Commandments, but let's just take it new. Take it with new eyes for a second. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's the first thing God tells his people. If it weren't God saying that, right, when people talk to us like that, we don't like it. Has anybody ever in your life had a friend who sort of has that attitude, like, I am thou'st good friend, and thou shalt have no other friends before me, or something like that, right? And what happens with that friend? You don't want to be friends with that friend anymore, right? Because it's like they kind of have an overinflated view of themselves. They kind of think that I should dominate all of their plans. I should sort of be their only friend. They get jealous of other friends. And so at face value, it's like, okay, what's going on here, God. Why, when people talk like that, it's because we have a need. We're needy. Is God being needy here? Well, we know he's not. So what makes it different? How can God say, thou shalt have no other gods before me, but when a friend says, thou shalt have no other friends before me, why are those different? Well, the primary, and we can go into it for a long, long, uh, we could say a lot about it. The primary difference is when God says that it's true, (laughs) right? When God says, I am the most important thing, we're going to look in a second about what this kind of idea of God's is. And, and the, at the heart, and I really I really like the way that uh, you, I think it was in your prayer, uh, this idea of sheltering was already, the spirit was at work. Because that's something I've been thinking about, that our God is what we shelter in. It's what we take refuge in. So I and my wife and my mother-in-law's with us say, hey, we're all from Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, we have tornadoes that come ripping through. Um, my mother-in-law's had tornadoes within blocks of where she currently lives. Um, in a tornado, you want to find a shelter, right? Um, it's not prideful for someone to say, hey, there's a tornado come. Come shelter here. My shelter is a strong one. We would never say, well, you prideful, needy person. Why are you so insecure that you want you us to shelter in your shelter because it's strong and durable? No, that person's doing us a favor. They're saying, this is the shelter that can protect you during this F5 tornado, right? Those other shelters are not going to work for you. And that's, a, that's gracious, and that's kind, and it's true. And that's what God is saying here. God is saying everything else that you're tempted to shelter in, that you're tempted to take refuge in, will let you down. You should have no other gods before me. Now, we might even be tempted to say, well, this is kind of weird because we know there aren't any other actual gods, right? Is it? think about that for a second. It's a little bit odd. God is saying, hey, uh, don't believe in any of these other gods. Only believe in me. We're like, well, God, there isn't any other gods. You're the only God. Why, why doesn't the command just say, uh, I'm the only God or something like that? And I think that gets us to the second point that God knows there's something about us to the point that we will constantly manufacture other gods. So he's not just saying, hey, out of all the pantheon of gods, you need to love me more than all the other gods, right? Because there are no other gods. But what he's saying is, you humans' hearts, for whatever reason in your rebellion, in your sin, will continue to create a pantheon of gods, and you should have no other gods before me. You should only shelter in me. So, what do we learn about God? We do learn his holiness, but we see his grace, we see his mercy. Just those two things get spread out both between the Old and the New Testament in Christ as well. What do we learn about ourselves? Well, we, we see that we need this first commandment, right? We are, as old theologians sometimes say, we have hearts that manufacture idols constantly, We generate gods. We generate idols. We're always finding something else to try to believe in. And you see this really clearly in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, right, they're constantly believing and struggling with false deities. Even later in this exact book, what's Aaron going to do? Build a golden calf. And then once they enter the promised land, there's a constant battle between them following and worshiping the Baals, following and worshiping the Asherahs. The Asherahs was a a fertility goddess. Um, This is what uh, uh, archaeologists and Old Testament people have, it's not real clear, but it seems like Asherah is a fertility goddess, and they would build this pole, and the belief was Asherah will help us with our crops. As I get older, I sort of have more sympathy for what I used to have no patience for of the children of Israel, right? Just as I get older, I sort of realize my own weaknesses and my own insecurities more. And I realize, you know, when I'm marching around in the desert as a dad and we don't have water and my children, I'm afraid, are going to starve of thirst and I think I'm going to starve of thirst, I might be the first one to say, Moses, let's just go back. At least my children have water. When I was 20, I'd read that like those stupid Israelites, (laughs) They're not not great. They don't have any gratitude for what God's done. But now I'm like, I think I might be that guy. And the same thing here, right? You're going into a new land, a land in Canaan where you're going to be raising crops. And you're thinking, I don't know much about farming. What if God can't help with farming? The people who live here, they trust this thing called Asherah. It helps with their farming. I'm a little bit tempted to build an Asherah pole just to sort of cover my bases for the farming. At least that's me being honest. So we need this commandment because we're constantly drawn. The rest of the book of Kings is all about how the different kings would either tear down the high places or not. Well, the high places were either places they worshiped, Baal or Asherah, and ways, or other, other sorts of gods on usually high mountaintops, but sometimes they're actually in the city center themselves. And so there's this constant history of, we need to build other gods. We need to worship and seek these other gods. Martin Luther says, what does it mean to have a God in his, one of his catechisms? This is so beautiful. A God is, or that which we expect all good, and to which we are ready to take refuge in all distress. So a God is that which we expect all good, and which we are to take refuge in all distress. I say upon that which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. That which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. Do you see? Do you agree with me that we need this command and we fail this command constantly? When distress hits, we can run to all of our other gods. When when we want refuge, when we need to go somewhere, we can find ourselves fleeing and running to one of these false gods. And the the big list is easy, right? Money, success. Success. Power. There's more subtle ones though. Some of us, our gods are ease. We just want to do what's easy. We want to stay away from pain as much as possible. Some of us, our God is praise of others. Some of us are, are, our God is esteem. I turned 40 a couple of years ago. I'm at that age in which I can't quite remember how old I am. I think I'm 42. Am I 42, Amanda? Okay, I'm 42 right now. Once you hit, those of you who've hit it, once you hit past 40, you're not, I don't really know anymore. It doesn't matter. But I spent about 39 years of my life with quite a few idols and gods in my life that I was completely unaware of. That's what makes our idols, I think, more frightening than an Asherah pole. At least an Asherah pole, when I go home, I'm like, oh yeah, I've got this false god in my house. Right? I see it there. And then like, you know, someone could burst, a friend could burst into my house and say, "Aha, oh, you have an Asherah pole. I'm like, oh, you got me, you're right, I have an Asherah pole. God, I forgive, I repent, I got to tear down the high place in my own house. But the problem with our idols are they're not quite so visible, even to us, and sometimes not to other people. We can have our idols and our gods that we don't realize that's what we're doing. If you're bowing down to a false idol, at least you sort of know you're doing it. And sometimes, some of us will have these idols that not only are other people not aware of, they're sort of patting us on the back. And you do this so well. They're not aware that you have a false god of needing that kind of affirmation. So what are they doing? They're sort of feeding your false god. And you're blind to it because you love it, you need it, you want that affirmation so badly. You're blind to the fact of, okay, I need to, this is dangerous for me. I receive too much buzz from this sort of affirmation. This is a false god. Just to be open and be aware of that is something that we require wisdom for from the Holy Spirit. Thank God in James 1, we're promised if you ask for wisdom, you'll be given it. Because some of these false gods that we build in our own lives, and our own hearts, are invisible to us and sometimes invisible to others. If you're married, your spouse probably knows what they are. Maybe have an honest conversation. What do you think mine are? And then you have to not be defensive. Because once you start removing our gods from our class, we get defensive. No, I don't do that. I don't, I don't like that that much. I only do that because, and, and, and that's, that's the hard part. For us today, our idols, our false gods are largely invisible to us, they're largely protected by us, and we largely cling to them because, well, according to Luther, that's where we go in times of distress. I can't let you just remove that from me, I need that. No you don't. You need it to be replaced, you need it to be redeemed by Jesus. So that's our third thing, what do we learn about Jesus from the passage? from the first commandment, generally speaking. And actually, Jesus, the way that he fulfills the law generally can be at times like, "Ah," and this is why it's such a great study for you guys to be doing. But the way Jesus fulfills the first commandment explicitly is quite simple, actually, right? And let's just think about it. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus comes along and says what? Well, John 14, 6, there's a lot of places he says something like this. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, you see the fulfillment there? Have no gods before Yahweh, God the Father. You can't know Yahweh except through Jesus. It's pretty straightforward, right? That to know, to be able to obey the first commandment, you must know Jesus, right? According to Jesus' own words No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus' fulfillment of the law of the first commandment is pretty straightforward. And it, but it sort of represents, that's the way Jesus fulfills the law generally. Jesus, he says to himself, I didn't come to destroy the law. God did, Jesus didn't come to sort of tear up the Old Testament and replace it with the new. Right? And Jesus isn't merely someone who's sort of helping us. He's like, Jesus, like you guys are, pretty, you guys are struggling with the law. Let me come and train you, right? Like Mr. Miyagi. Let me train you how to, fight, how to do the law well. Jesus' role is so much more than that. And Jesus isn't merely, I think this is, this is the one I've fallen into some of my life. Remember the old mad God in the Old Testament and happy God in the New Testament? It's as if Jesus is primarily like a really good real estate agent or something. And he kind of comes and renegotiates the deal with God the Father. And he's like, hey, I know you're kind of mad at the people. And I know that they keep fa- failing. Uh, but, but actually, you know, they've got a pretty good down payment. And, you know, I think they're going to make it through escrow. And uh, I'm not be using my words right. And some realtor can come correct me. But um, as if Jesus just sort of steps in like Henry Kissinger and makes everything better. And he comes back. And the terms of the deal have been renegotiated. And that sense gives us a pretty negative view of God the Father. Because it's kind of like God saying, oh, I wanted to crush him. But I kind of have to relent because this really good negotiator, Jesus, came. Those are the sorts of views of the relationship between the law and Jesus that we have. But no, there's this glorious, loving fulfillment. Jesus fulfills the law. And in the first command, we see it very clearly. Have no other gods before me. Hide in me alone in your times of distress. That's what God the Father is saying. That's a beautiful way to understand that. And Jesus is saying, I'll show you the way. (laughs) I'll show you the way. I'll take you to the Father. In fact, if you don't have me, you can't get to the Father. Why? Well, because of the same stuff we talked about in Exodus. Your sin is so great. His holiness is so high. You can't really go to the Father except through Jesus because of the work He did on the cross. By dying in our place, fulfilling the law perfectly, raising again and defeating death, that now we can have access. We can now fulfill and obey the first command in a way that was impossible to do in the old covenant because faith in Jesus permits it, makes it possible. And not only that, we get sealed with the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. Right? This is a one-time. It's not like we're going to fall out of His grace because we stopped doing the, the propitiations properly. No, we have a one-time propitiator, Jesus. And we're sealed with the Spirit, closed up. It's beautiful. There's salvation in no other name. Jesus says it clearly many times. Paul says it clearly that the first command, they should have no other gods before me, helps us understand Jesus is the name through which we can have salvation. So review, first command, have no other gods before me, hide in me alone. Jesus comes along, we fail, right? We need that command and we fail that command constantly. If that's where the story ended, it'd be bad news. Oh man, there's a command. We can't do it. No good. It's not where the story ends. Jesus fulfills the law, accomplishes it for us perfectly, and then through his death and resurrection, we can now know God and obey the first commandment clearly. Let me in the last few minutes with an illustration and and, uh, tie it together with what we're talking about because I needed to tell you that because when I started on this story, you're going to think, what in the world is he talking about? Um, I love tools. Father's Day was last Sunday, right? So, uh, not long ago, about a year ago, I was given a, a hedge trimmer, a, a, a battery charged hedge trimmer for my backyard, and I've got sort of, I've got these. Uh, hedges that grow and I've got some of the low voltage lighting. And about a week or two ago, I had my sons and we're in the backyard and I just went, I went crazy with the hedge trimmer. I just was running. I'm almost sprinting. I felt like I had a lightsaber in my hand, right? I was just trimming those hedges. I was going over the top. I was just going crazy. And then the boys were falling behind. It was perfect because they were cleaning everything up. I got to do just the destruction without the cleanup. That's why we have children, right? You have this small span of time in which you can take advantage of your children. They did all the cleanup for me. I just did the destruction. And then that night, the transformer turns the low voltage lights on, and what happens? Three out of 12 turn on, three. So, for well, this is sort of part of my neurosis. I start in that night. I was like, all right, well, I, I must have cut or damaged the cord, and it took me about three days. And I found the damage. I found where the cord was, and what I do, I replace it. I splice it all together. I'm not real good at that, but I figured it out. I got it all done. It took me too long, and I turn the transformer on. Four lights are working. <laughs> I had cut the cords four different places. I had to dig every single one of those stupid little cords out and go all the way along. I basically rewired the entire backyard with lighting. That reminds me, this is the reason I'm bringing it up. We have this really beautiful illustration. It's a very sad illustration. We have two of them that this reminds me of. Is that I see the trouble. I think, I got this. I I fixed the place. I got this. But then when the transformer turns on, the power turns on, I realize... I don't know, I just got this one. I still, have the, I still have more trouble. I still have more things to replace. And it reminds me in the New Testament in Matthew, is this in, I think, all the Synoptic Gospels, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Remember this one? And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, follow the commandments. He's like, which ones? And Jesus basically gives him a refresher. Oh, you just follow these and these. And then the guy says what? Anybody remember? These I have done since my childhood. I've got this. And what's Jesus say next? He turns on the transformer. He says, let's see where there's trouble in this line. He says, all right, one thing you lack, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and follow me. Now, here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is doing a pinpoint to his soul, I know what your idol is. That's not, not, we're not all, if I went to talk to him, he said something different to me. One good question for you is if you went to talk to Jesus, what would he what was that pinpoint razor that he'd have told you? And the sad part of the story is the young man went away sad because he had many possessions. The young man went away sad because he had many possessions. His God was too strong. The, you see the self deception there? I got this. Turn on the transformer, there's damage in the line. And it's very evident because your great possessions were your God, rich young ruler, to the point that you were unwilling to let it go. You were hiding in those possessions, which is sort of sad, isn't it? Because at some point in that rich young ruler's life, whether the possessions went away or maybe it wasn't until the end of his life, but at some point those possessions are going to let him down we can beat up on those that are sort of outside, but you see almost the exact same thing in Peter's life, right? Uh, Peter at one point says what? He says, uh, well, all of these guys may fall away. I never will. I, I, I like Peter a lot because I recognize myself a lot in Peter. Like, he's sort of this brash, confidence, sort of says things before he really judges. I would have loved to have had a a video of the rest of the disciples' faces when he said that. Because they were all, he just basically threw them all under the bus. I got these losers, they're, they're all weaklings. And they may fall away, but I never will. I'm Superman, right? I'm super Peter. And what happens, the very next thing is Peter can't stay awake while Jesus is praying. And then the very next thing is Peter denies Jesus three times. Peter's like, I got this. I got the wires. The transformer turns on. No, you didn't, Peter. You don't have it. Your idol, whatever it was, fear in that one moment, your idol was revealed to you when the power gets turned on. And so what about you? What's going to happen in your life to reveal where your wires are cut, where you think you got it? I know I trust God he's my only God, I don't have any other idols. And then maybe you lose your job, or maybe a health problem hits. And some of you are in the midst of those sort of circumstances now. But when those things hit, that's when you realize what you run to. And that's where we need each other in the church to remind each other and to help each other and to come alongside each other and say, run to Jesus, hide in Jesus. Jesus is the shelter. That's where you want to receive your shelter and your hiding, because Jesus fulfills this. So we might, even just as we apply this, just think, okay, Spirit, help us see what are those hidden Asherah poles in our hearts that we're unaware of. We need your wisdom to reveal them to us. Here's the secret. When they're small, they're easier to tear down. When they grow large whenever we've trusted on them and run to them over and over again, that's when they're harder to destroy. At this point is when the visiting preacher starts meddling a little bit in my own heart and in yours to say, what is it? What is it that you're blind to? Is it affirmation and praise? One of my idols throughout most of my life is I love to be viewed as competent in everything I do. It's, it's almost, you can almost see, you have those kinds of of idols, you sort of want to be viewed as God, right? God's the only competent being all the time, but I want to be viewed as competent. I'm hungry for you to think that I'm competent. I'm starved whenever I was younger to be viewed as and to be praised as competent in this or this or this. And that, that, that hunger, without being recognized as sinful, without being recognized as an idol, it begins to grow and it begins to grow and it begins to grow until God brings circumstances into your life that causes those Asherah poles to be torn down. Those are hard and painful, but praise the Lord that they happen, because sanctification won't happen if you don't get them torn down. So what is it for you? Maybe have a conversation with those who love you. Maybe just spend some time truly reflecting, what are those things that just fill my cup? What are those things that I run to in the midst of distress that I shelter in? But we're not on our own for that. Praise the Lord. We have each other, but we have Jesus. It's the whole point of him fulfilling this command is we have Jesus to come along and say, I can help you see this. I can help you through this. And I can take you to the Father, right? That's what faith in Jesus is all about. And so that we can say, Jesus, help me see what my idols are. Jesus, help me turn from my idols that's what repentance is, right? The turning away. Help me turn away. There are some deep connections between addictive sorts of behaviors and idolatry. In fact, some good biblical counselors essentially equate addiction to idolatry. And you can see why. People who are addicted to uh, alcohol will turn to alcohol in the midst of their distress, right? Right? People that are addicted to pornography will turn to pornography in the midst of their distress. People that are addicted, and there's all these other, I like to thought, I think of them all as false intimacies, and then all of a sudden the door is wider open. I, I have false intimacies that I, I want people's affirmation, I want people's praise. I turn to that in the midst of my distress. And so we, we say, Jesus, help me see it. Jesus, help me turn from it. And Jesus, help me to hide in the appropriate place. To hide in God the Father. Not easy things, and what are we all? We're all gonna be bashing our idols down from our hearts as long as we're humans. Never stops. It'd be actually fun. Uh, it w- it'd be fun to sort of pause right now and have some of you who have more years of experience, both in the faith and just on earth, walk up and say, hey, when I was 20, here was my idol. Whenever I was 40, here is my idol. When I was 60, here was my idol. And today, I'm not exactly sure because we're always having to struggle through it. But I think it's this right now. That would be, wouldn't that be insightful, just to hear sort of the, the body sharing with one another their journey through combating this idolatry? And then the beautiful part of it would be, but Jesus has been there all along. <laughs> Jesus has brought me through. Jesus loves me when I fail and go back to that idol. That's sort of the whole point of the Old Testament, right, is our human constant tendency to abandon God and his constant tendency to show us grace, to show us forgiveness, to meet us where we're at, to pick us up out of the miry pit, and to put our feet on the clay and say, I love you. Oh, how beautiful. Let me pray for that end even now. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, forgive us for being idol makers, false God worshipers, And my prayer is is that your spirit would help each of us to see uh, what those idols are and what those false gods are. Um, Just today, maybe while we're at lunch, maybe we take a walk, maybe tonight before we're going to sleep, uh, and just give us clear sight into current struggles before they catch us and pull us under. And that we would tap into that power of Jesus that can help us to do that by fulfilling not only this command, but the entire law. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.